Have we exhausted the utility of hope? Have we wrung out the last bit of innocence and the possibility that we could somehow change while remaining the same? Is there maybe a maturing, a reciprocity, and maybe even still wonder that's available to us when we leave behind the kind of hoping and efforting we've clung to for so long? We are coming down to earth. We will not arrive intact. These words come from our guest today, Dr. Bayo Akamalafe. He's a professor, a poet, a philosopher, and he's the author of These Wilds Beyond Our Fences. Bayo turns concepts that seem safe on their sides. He doesn't let us settle in comfortable places. And when I speak with him, the question that I think so many of us hold dear in activism or organizing, the question of how do we win? is temporarily or maybe forever replaced with the question of how do we live? I found this conversation so challenging and so invigorating, and I hope that you enjoy it too. I uh, was hoping you guys would supply cookies or something, but since we're here, <laughs> you just roll with it. <laughs> I was Next promised. time, post-pandemic. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> let's make it work. <laughs> I feel so excited today to be in conversation with Bayo Kamalafe. Um, Bayo, I've been really inspired by your work, really touched by your work. And uh, especially, I will say, kind of your uh, commitment to questions. This podcast is one where we say this isn't a podcast about answers, it's a podcast about questions and asking questions. And I, I really feel your commitment there. So um, just really excited to have you in this space and in conversation and sharing here. I'm uh, very lucky to have uh, been found by your questioning, <laughs> by your <laughs> inquiry. I'm really grateful to be here and to be in touch with you, Prentice. Thank you. Yeah, I do feel like it's um inquiry that that had me find you in a way. I actually don't know how I found you, but uh as soon as I found your work, I thought, "Oh wow, there's someone else that is guided by questions." Do you feel that way? Does that resonate for you? Yeah, yeah. It I've been losing my way for some time. Um straying away from the confidence of ready-made answers, and it could get very lonely. And so when you run into someone who is also like, but what if we think about it this way, though? It feels very, very energizing, very enchanting. So I do feel the space of inquiry. I think there's probably nothing more enchanting in uh, on a ruined planet in the Anthropocene, like carving out a sacred space of sitting down together and following where questions might lead. Absolutely. We we usually start this space with um, a question. I ask each of the guests to kind of describe where we are right now from their perspective. What vistas do you see? What opportunities? How how would you name this moment? Yeah, I really wanted to ask you that. And I, I want to ask you that with a very, I guess, a wide we, like where we are, knowing that you uh -huh. live in India where there's a lot of distance between us. So 
mm-hmm. perhaps a wide we or whatever we kind of resonates for you, where where would you say that we are right now? My elders say, if you want to find your way, you must be willing to become lost. You must be willing to lose your way in order to find it. That sounds like poetic nonsense. Um, and yet, there, there's, um, there's, something, there's something rich about that description and its appropriateness for um, white modernity and, and, the, um, and the dynamics of our present globalizing civilization. I think we are, I think we are, we're experiencing the toxicity of being found, fully found, fully owned, fully categorized, um, fully in place, if you will. And there's something ironic about modernity and how it frames place. It frames place by naming it forcefully, sometimes with violence, by insisting on the agency of of the human, the individual. Um, And um, the irony there is, in a sense, when you name something so forcefully, something slips away, something eases away. What eases away? What, What steals away? Our relationships with each other, with the earth, a sense of humility, you know, the whiff of an idea that we are entangled with the planet is lost in the city. I guess this is the time, you see, when a shaman, a Yoruba shaman, I'm Yoruba from Nigeria, where my brothers and sisters across the Atlantic were taken, many of them, when a shaman or a healer or a babalawo notices that healing, that the person's health is entangled with the person's sickness, he cuts the body open. I think we need cracks and openings. We are addicted to the highway. The highway is leading to nowhere interesting, but that's all modernity can offer us. And now we need to get lost in order to find a new way a different way. So yes, Prentice, I feel where we are is we are living in the incarceration of a single way, the monolithic enterprise of the highway. And we're being invited to fall off the highway like fugitives. There's something in what you just shared that really uh, relates to me to the political moment that I feel like we're in or I'm in here in the U.S. and uh, the organizing efforts towards abolishing prisons, police. Mm. When we talk about being incarcerated, um, it 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 really made a a connection there for me of just how much the the carceral logic I would say extends yeah. beyond those walls. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts there. And then I want to ask you about kind of this, your take on activism also. Well, I've been writing a lot about the nation state, definitely not the, the hundredth or the one thousandth to, to, to speak about the carcerality of the nation state and how it um, produces citizenry. It's material, it's citizenry. It's, 
its focus is citizenry. Uh, the United States is a prime example of empire um, outsourcing or subsidizing its efforts to create the perfect citizenry um, by sponsoring coups <laughs> in Ghana, in Africa, in South America, taking that violence, you know, and exporting it around the world, and then blaming uh, the so-called global South for not aspiring to be a shining city set upon a hill like like the capital. <laughs> so so there, there is a sense in which the, the, the prison is just a microcosm of the nation state and its proliferation of incarceration. And that is what feels troubling, you see, to dance with activism. That is what feels troubling about activism. And I don't mean to speak about activism as if it's a monolithic enterprise, as if there were one thing called activism, right? Um, but to paint with broad brush strokes, um, I would say that there is a sense in which activism seems to reinforce the very parameters that it seeks to upend uh, because it's working with the very same epistemological conditions that makes its enemy possible. I say it this way often, that if we meet our problems, if we seek emancipation using the same epistemology that makes oppression possible, we risk reinforcing our oppression. Activism seems to be caught up in a politics of recognition, a politics of, hey, nation state, acknowledge me too, you know, acknowledge, see me as well. And, and there are risks in being recognized. Let me just put it as mildly as that. There are risks in being seen. There are risks in being noticed. I've been in organizing work for, I don't know, 15, plus years at this point. And my work in the last 10 years has been kind of in the realm of what we call healing justice here, which is um, understanding healing as in some ways the, the indicator and process for liberation. And there's been a, a very complicated way that that has worked with organizing efforts. It has sometimes mm -hmm. been a support to, it has sometimes been disruptive to, it has sometimes been a, yeah. a redirection of what our aims and goals are in the work that we, like you said, very broad work that we call organizing. Yeah. But I would love to hear from you, you know, someone who feels maybe in similar questions or water, what your uh, feelings are, thoughts are around post-activism. Can you really unfold that a bit for us? Well, it's, it's my, my experience as an African and um, an African who lived in the uh, heydays of, well, I wouldn't say they're heydays, we're still in the midst of that. Um, the, the promise of activism has been very strong, or I grew up within the, a space when everyone wanted to start an NGO. Everyone wanted to get some links with... Uh, the people in the West who are going to send us funding in order to further our cause and stuff like that. I guess written into our efforts and terms of engagement was this silent codicil 
that we were going to happen upon heaven, that we were going to arrive, that heaven was just around the corner. And we've been disappointed over and over again, right from the 60s, right from the moment we declared independence in the 1970s um, from the British colonial powers and foreign powers. We've been disappointed over and over again. Um, so much so that it dawned on us, and I frame it this way, that it seemed that the very ways we approached and framed our problems was the problem. That the very ways we understood the crisis were the crisis. You know? and, and that is, I think, the heart of what I call post-activism. Um, by post-activism, I don't mean a superior form of activism. I don't mean uh, activism is done here, guys, is a new spiritual space where there are no problems, there are only solutions, nothing like that. It's not bypassing or, or spiritualizing or making overly ambiguous the terms of our troubles, right? It's none of that. It's basically noticing it, uh, that if we are part of the world, then we cannot stand outside of it to understand our problems. If we are part of the world, and not liberal humanist subjects, as modernity would like us to think of ourselves, who think up solutions and just solve their problems. You know, um, if we're part of this whole thing, this whole shebang, then then we need to broaden our scope of what is possible to do, and we need to reframe who is doing the doing, who is the activist, what does agency mean when we can no longer draw neat, uh, neat and convenient boundaries between our skins and the furniture, between our agency and the way we think and giant social media. Where do we draw the line? Who's acting really? And acting for what purposes? How do we trace what desire means in the Anthropocene when plastic seeps into skins and bodies and animals are imprinted with political uh, figures like the uh, what's the animal that had Trump written the manatee, on last week? Manatee, the manatee, yeah. Um, where do we draw the lines between these things? So, when everything gets messy, then we cannot depend on the infrastructure that modernity has uh, left to us as a legacy. That this is how to act, and there's power. And if you want power, you make your claims to power. I do not find it compelling that in a time when everything gets messy, power has to be distant. So post-activism is literally, well, I won't say literally, is really um, a, a figure of cracks and fault lines and fissures and seismic shifts. It's what happens when we, it's post-disaster spirituality, basically, post-disaster activism. Like what happens when our flesh is muddied and spread out and things are not as neat and tidy. Um, I think what happens is we learn how to stay with the trouble. We learn how to build wilder coalitions of acting. And there's a whole thing I can say about that. But I guess that's something introductory about post-activism. Where, where is power for you? Can I tell you something real quick? Uh, the, uh, when I, I started learning about slavery and and the fact that, you know, all the dimensions and nuances of the Middle Passage and transatlantic slave trade, 
um, growing up as a young academic, I would read Walter Rodney, Wale Shoenka, Chimamanda Adichie, Chinua Achebe. These great writers, Ngugi Watliongo, decolonial power writers, you know, and I would be so excited about them and I'll raise my fists and I'll say black power. And I'll, I wrote a book with um, uh, a, a dear author of Molefi Asante, who is African-American, founded Afrocentrism. Um, mm-hmm. And the whole exploration was basically that question, where is power mm-hmm. or what is power? Um, and then I learned about, you know, Yoruba gods, because I was brought up in Christianized Nigeria, Christianized Nigeria. I learned to see Jesus as the expression of universal truth um, and pastors as his embodiments, his avatars. Um, And I learned to see Yoruba gods, Orishas, Shongo, Eshu, Oya, you know, all of them as demonic entities, you know, things to be done away with. Um. And then when I started to recover from that, I still had a question left. I said, if these guys are really powerful, if Ishu and Ogun and Shongo and Yemoja are powerful, then why didn't they do anything to stop the slavers from taking our people and taking them across the Atlantic? And then I got to learn from some elders that it's because you think of power in a particular way, in a very modern way, you do not know what's happening. Um, that Eshu traveled with the slaves, they said. Eshu traveled across the Atlantic with the slaves. Now think about that for a moment. Eshu stole into the ships, and the modern slaver had on his diary the list of the names of everyone they had incarcerated. They had 75 bodies from the Bight of Biafra or from the Bight of Benin. They had a list, and yet there was an invisible guest. That Mm. is power. Someone stole mm, into the mm-hmm. mist and created a space of excess. That is okay. power. And so they, they taught me to think of power as the, the excessiveness, the embarrassing excessiveness of things. When things spill away from their containers and become something different that we don't know how to name yet. Modernity prides in power as my ability to name things. That is a park. This shall be uh, gentrified as a new estate, I send you all out. This is the capital. Modernity prides in naming things. But there's a kind of power that's occultic and diffractive and yet to come that is entangled and embodied and is in league with rhizomatic movements and mushrooms and air and climate. That's a deep sense of power that escapes modernity. And I feel if we learn to listen, maybe we might learn to tap into those other spaces of power. I want to travel maybe kind of in between those questions um, that I just okay. asked. And it it's uh, something I see in your work. And I, I'm going to kind of speak around my the way it kind of lands in me or my interpretation of it. But you're, you talk about the end of hope. You know, I think as someone who was similarly raised Christian in the South and the end times, the promise of the end times, the for me, the kind of yeah. terror of the end times. And then someone who moved into movement spaces or organizing spaces and the promise also of the kind of one-time climactic revolutionary moment. 
and I, I felt the similarities between those. I wonder if um, you could talk about those kind of, well, my words, kind of compulsions towards uh, a kind of hope. Um, what, if you have thoughts about what those are about or, or what is missed in those moments, or if I'm also interpreting your kind of end of hope <laughs> um, yeah. along the lines that you intend. Um, well, well, you know what I like to do? I like to queer the heritage, Christian treasures that I received growing up. We would sing about the end times and rapture, you know, and, and, and being rapturable. Yeah. <laughs> stay rapturable, stay, stay mm. rapturable. Um, I feel that the kind of end times that my work and my writing and my voice is committed to is rupture. You know, the end times that it's not about rapture, but ruptures, cracks in the container of incarceration that is, that offers just a glimpse of something different, just a fugitive glimpse of life outside of the plantation, marronage, a crack of marronage, if you will. And so let's dance with hope. The modern day assumption is that hope is a human thing. It's a human phenomenon. It's an, it's an effective state. You know, It's belief in some kind of future. Uh, it's anticipation. It's all of that. I see hope... Um, and again, not categorically, but the one that is quite functionally present in my navigation of today is hope as a colonial entity, hope as a colonial territory. When I see hope, I don't think about someone going, one day this shall happen. That's not the picture of hope for me. The picture of hope is slaves, uh, slave ships uh, traversing the Atlantic. It's... it's um, it's basically a scientist in a laboratory insisting that black bodies are uh, an ontological wrong below white bodies. It's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's the British colonial masters flying the Union Jack in Nigeria and claiming that, that land as their own. There, there is a sense of hope that is the promise. Let me think of it as the territorial promise of unending continuity that is mm -hmm, premised mm -hmm. on human agency. That is all we need to do is keep going forward. So when I think of hope, I think of Winston Churchill showing the victory sign, never, never, never give up. I think of war. I think of hope as a territorial present, as a terrestrial present. And then I think of the end of hope as something, that excessive trickster, issue-like quality, that crack in the body of the slave ship that allows Yemoja to, to spill in and comfort those who are shackled to its body, to its guts. I think of hopelessness, you know, not as a good thing. I'm, I, I hope I'm not creating a binary, like hope is bad, hopelessness right. is good. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think of, you know, some of the ways we perform hope is to tefer ourselves to institutions, massive translocal, transnational institutions, which stand in the place of God who is absent. And then we say that, uh, you know, if, if we continue to do the things we've been doing, then um, we will arrive someday. At the end of the rainbow is the universe, the heaven we will arrive at. 
But I ask myself, or I, I ask others as well, that what happens when that is disrupted? What happens when the things we have attached ourselves to become poisonous? What happens when continuity is, is toxic? Where's the place of dying and dying well? Where's the place of demise? You know, where's the place of slowing down? So I do think, you know, if we're to think about theorizing the end of hope, not as a, an absolute pristine hopelessness, but as a querying of the binary that premises hope and hopelessness as twin or as enemies to each other, um, um, I, I would say, I would say that there is the place that when we get to the end of the of our of the rope of our of of continuity, there is promise there. There is power, and I'm not speaking in some kind of poetic escapism. Not, uh, uh, there is historical precedence for this. The lives of the slaves who were incarcerated and pressed to the ground, and yet in the ground they found. They found generativity. They found hope there. They found they found a queer kind of continuity. Yeah, that's what it means to me. There's such an offering there, I think, um, that I can feel very viscerally when you uh, share that. There's just a more room for kind of honesty, impact to be actually transformed, to arrive in the moment. And it also... Um, I think I'll just say this and you don't necessarily have to speak to it unless you feel compelled, but there's something in particular for us in the U S having gone through eight years of the Obama administration and the kind of promise of hope. I mean, hope was right out there in the forefront in that election. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then the, the backlash to that. And then I would say, you know, this, this, this <laughs> current, this present um, election moment, and yeah. both what I feel is a kind of um, uh, some people wanting to to reclaim that moment that we had hope. We want that continuity between the Obama moment and now through the election of Biden. Yeah. And there's other folks that have a a different trajectory that they are in some ways trying to continue um, yeah. that maybe reaches back beyond that. So I, I feel really struck by those, that binary, those options that we were given in this yeah. moment and what the, the kind of wrestling with the end of hope actually offers us uh, for understanding where power might actually have slipped through these cracks. I mean, yeah, like... <laughs> I I uh I was I was re- I was with you in that moment. I, I was the audacity of hope wasn't just an American thing. It was a it was a very very Nigerian thing as well. I oh, yeah. I had Obama's Time magazine um cover uh plastered on my car and I drove around Lagos with it and everyone would ring with recognition Obama Obama and you, well I I was, I'm not Obama, but Obama was a presence. He was the yeah. he was the affirmation yeah. we were looking for, right? Yeah. yeah, he's our guy. He looks like us. Mm-hmm. We we have recognition, and then, yeah, I and then, you know, no words for that. 
<laughs> no, no words for that at the moment. It, it's because Obama, the community organizer, Obama, the community mm-hmm. organizer, and the 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 avatar of eloquence, you know, was a far cry from Obama, the aspect of a resilient machine, you know, that mm-hmm. transcends right. individualized intentions, you know. Um, so this is not a demonization of Obama. It's just a noticing that there are principalities and powers that we contend with that goes beyond our Puritan ideas about, oh, we're fighting the bad guys and we're the good guys here. There are yeah. other kinds of moves that are being invited in this moment. And I think this is what we're speaking about, you know, a, a different politics or uh, are going towards other sources of power, other places of power. But that means, Prentice, it, it means losing our way well, generously, mm-hmm. or else we're, we're stuck in this repeatability. Mm-hmm. I have a, just a couple more questions for you here. And... Um... I think I'm really curious about this, you know, kind of losing our way generously. And then also the way that you kind of write about or explore home in your work. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk about what home is or what you found there or how, how it's created in your life. Just if you could talk about home. Well, you know, I I wrote a whole book about home and I still don't know how to talk about it. (laughs) I don't know how to talk about it. It's probably the most difficult thing to talk about. Mm, Why is that? I don't know. It slips away. (laughs) There's something Hmm. that it just just slips away from being held. Hmm. And, and And I guess that's most, some people come away disappointed, I guess, but that's the most I can offer when people ask me, I hear a longing sometimes when I'm when I'm asked about home, um, and maybe people expect to hear something like, um, maybe some kumbaya or, or <laughs> by and by we shall arrive. I maybe they 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 expect to hear um, a, a a narrative of arrival, and right. if we stick at at the the tried and true, if we if we do our work well, we will. We'll get we'll get there. Uh, justice is and, and and I don't know how to speak that way. At least that doesn't feel my place to do at this point in time. Maybe others are better equipped to do so. I feel possessed by a trickster, and the trickster is dancing into the wilderness and saying, um, "If you want to find home, just follow me." And I'm like, "Okay, just tell me. Give me a map. Give me some assurance that." my faithfulness to your playfulness will take me somewhere concrete. And I don't have that assurance. All I know is that I'm getting further and further away from the plantation that owned my body Hmm. and claimed my labor and owned my mind and insisted on me thinking in particular ways. And maybe the trickster can only offer us that. For the moment, get lost. (laughs) And maybe home, you might glimpse that you're already at home in your navigating foundness and lostness. You might find a more thrilling, exquisite home that your language, your present language cannot accommodate. I love it. Thank you. Um, what are your questions now? What, what's with you? What are the questions that sit with you or 
speak to you in this moment? Well, I'm, I'm constantly about how do we get lost well. Like, I have a morbid fear of an unnecessary fear, you might say, of doing the same old, same old, doing the tried and true. It's almost obsessive, you know, of writing the same way or, or thinking the same way um, or, or doing something that is, and I know there's irony here, you know, because often when we take a road to avoid a certain outcome, we end up, you know, reinforcing that outcome, like I've said. Um, my question is, or my questions might be readily themed or or named as this quest inquiry about how to lose one's way, how to meet the world in a way that allows the world to meet us in return. I guess, Prentice, I'm looking for magic, right? I I just cannot accept that McDonald's, this uh, airports, uh, Tesla, Amazon, internet, Microsoft, Facebook. I, I just can't accept that that's all there is to it. I, I right. just cannot bring myself to accept that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking mm-hmm. for, I'm looking for something else. Otherwise. And maybe this is my last question. What, what are your practices? What are your practices for encountering wonder or finding wonder wonder or embodying wonder like what are your what are your practices what does it look like in your day well my practices are not discrete things that fit into my schedule of the day my my present practice especially with my wife is the whole day is is our present life at the moment we are university professors in nigeria she's in she was in she's indian uh, um she came to Nigeria to teach. We did our work and then we decided we're not going to do this. We want to live a small, intimate life. And we see what education is actually doing to the global South. We see what education, the education enterprise, industry, factory schooling is doing to kids. What if we took it seriously that kids are actually invitations from the sacred, from the divine to listen, to lose our way, to play more? Right? What if we took that seriously? What would that look like? And so we quit. We left the university. Um, of course, we're still teaching universities, but we, we, <laughs> we're not roped or tied to any. We're not shackled by employment. Mm. And, so, mm-hmm. and so we decided to, our practice now is following our children, our two kids, mm. Alethea and Kea. Um, some people call it unschooling. Some people call it self-directed education. I call it magic you know, when a child says, where does shit come from? That is a research project. That is a fugitive encounter there that takes you away from the convenience of the answers that have been given you into, into something entirely different. And so that's what we do. That's what we do with our journals, with our circles, when we gather in the morning and, and the questions we have for the day, and then we explore together. That's end time research inquiry where does shit come from <laughs> like my daughter asked when she was three years old you know yeah oh that's so fun 
Bio, I want to thank you for this journey and this conversation. I feel like I've gone many places and some places I hadn't quite visited before. So I want to just thank you for taking the time to be with us here. I'm grateful. My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Finding Our Way is co-produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill, co-production and visual design by Devin Delania. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain the podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you for listening to Finding Our Way. Thank you.